Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. There you go. Okay, so when I was told that I'm going to be preaching on uh, healthy sexual boundaries, I was like, eh! I think they trust me a little bit too much. <laughs> a little bit, right? Um, but then I was t- talking to God, I'm like, yo, God, are you sure? Are you sure me? And I felt God saying that he doesn't need my perfection. He just needs me to be a vessel to him. And I feel like that's what he says to us all the time. Like, when it comes to our purity and sexual things, we try to be perfect. And when we fail, we feel like, ah, you know what? I might as well carry on doing what I was doing, you know? I've gone too far. And I feel like today, God is going to speak life into this. He's going to speak change into this. Um, I want us to hear and be ready to receive what God is saying. So before I start, let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your love. Man, I'm so excited to share your word, Lord. I pray, Lord, Father God, that hearts are ready to receive your word. Not mine, Lord. Not my words, but yours, Lord. I pray that you use me as your vessel, Lord. I pray for more of you and less of me. I thank you for your presence that is here with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty. Let's get started. Um, So I've been doing a a devotional call that we were sexual before we were sinners. And I was just like, what does this mean? But I realized this, that before the fall, God has already intended sex to be good, right? He already intended us to have sexual desires. It is normal. It's natural. It's not sin. But society has told us, oh, you don't talk about sex on the pulpit. Actually, you don't talk about sex in general right? But more than that, you don't speak about your sexual desires. And the thing is, when I grew up, I thought that I needed to be perfect and that my virginity equated my purity, not realizing that purity is actually a posture of my heart, right? So sometimes you feel like, oh, but I'm not a virgin anymore. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm lusting or whatever. It does not mean that purity is not your portion, right? The purity comes from you going after the things that God wants for you. And it doesn't mean you need to be perfect in in those things, because God just knows the posture of your heart. That's what matters. You will fail. And we're going to learn that in our text right now. Um, So that pressure right now, before we even start, take that off of you, you know, trying to be perfect in everything. Um, Some of us don't even read the Bible every single day. We forget you know, only Lareko. Lareko's great, probably. I don't know. I think his children force, it, force him to read his Bible every day. Um, but yeah, God wired us for sex, right? He, he wired us to find pleasure in sex. But he also designed it that when we are married, that's when we can explore all those desires, right? All those things, because it becomes healthy, in that space, because now you're not filled with brokenness, now you're not using sex as a means of control, because you felt like your control was taken when you were maybe raped, right? Because sometimes these things happen. So our text today is about David and Bathsheba. And let me tell you, 
This is full of drama, of suspense. It's full of sex and lust and lies and deception. Guys, it could be a blockbuster movie. It literally could be. As we're going to go through this text, you're going to see, like this thing, guys, it is so deep. And the sad thing that this is a man after God's own heart. And he's said this from even the New Testament, there's places where it's referred that David was a man of God's own heart, but ooh, what happened to this man? So before we start our text, um, we find that David is king, he's been king for about 20 years, and he is a time of war, right? So all the kings um, are actually at the forefront with their armies, and that's where we kick off in verse 1. It says, in the spring, at the time... When kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rahab. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent out someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. First of all, we see that David is actually in a place that he was not meant to be. How often does temptation happen when you are in a place that you're not meant to be? Maybe not just a place, but a space, a mindset, a lifestyle that you are not meant to be. We find David in that space. He's meant to be at the forefront with the, with the other kings, fighting with his army. But where is he? He's at home. He took a nap. He's chilling. Now he's walking on the palace roof, seeing this beautiful woman bathing. Also, maybe there was no curtains at that time. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> it is what it is. And also, David was a beautiful man himself, right? Because earlier, when, before he even became king, he's described that he was good-looking. So also, maybe Bathsheba was like, man, you're do like, this man's, you know? And he's the king. So we don't know here. We don't, it doesn't say that she was raped. It doesn't say anything. But she, it says she came. So maybe there was a level of, okay, I'm also, you know, okay with this. But we also know that David was, had seven wives at this time. A man with seven wives, you think that sex was not enough, like you could get it every day of the week, literally. But still, it wasn't enough. Yeah. Why? Because even a man who was perfect and after God's own heart still had desires, still had a sexual appetite, right? Because it's normal. The only thing is this, that he acted on it instead of fleeing from temptation. Temptation also happens a lot in your singleness, because I know, you know, you're just like, ah, but I'm single, I want to be held. You know, I, I just miss that touch here. Um, maybe if I go out, then you drink a little, then you meet someone, you're like, hmm, maybe I should do this. It's not just in marriage, it's in singleness, it's in all aspects of your life. You could even be engaged and still have temptation, right? But you see here that both of them defiled the marriage bed. Also, David had an opportunity to actually not 
sin with Bathsheba. How do we know that? Because it says there, um, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Basically, David knew exactly who she was and exactly who she was related to, and he did not care. Let's carry on. Verse 6, so David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. Then Uriah came, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. In other versions, it says, not virgins, versions, it says he was sent with meat, right? But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander, Joab, and my, king, my lord's men, your men, David, are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. You see here that David is trying now to hide his sin, right, by bringing Uriah back from the, from the wall so he can hopefully sleep with his wife. But Uriah is like, nah. Because you see here that Uriah is actually a man of good stature and he's honorable because he knows he's not in the place that he should be. Something that David should have recognized that he's not in the place that he should be. But Uriah, no, he realizes that, Right? Uriah is not a king. He's just like an ordinary person like you and me. Uriah wanted to be where David should have been. Verse 12. It says, Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In, in it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. Then when, the city, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. First of all, I just want to say, I don't think Uriah was a closer man, because if he was, that meat and the alcohol, you know, would, would have, he would have wanted to have a nice time, you know? <laughs> he would have wanted to have a nice time. But Uriah's like, no, I am here where I'm not meant to be. So he instead, he, instead of going to his wife and enjoying his wife, which is what David wanted, because, you know, alcohol, you know, kind of does that to you. It makes your, um, what's your inhibitions kind of lowered, right? That's exactly what he wanted. But it did not work. Why? Because Uriah was an honorable man, a man that David should have been, and a man David was, but now is falling. David here goes to the extremes to hide his sin. What extremes have you gone through 
to hide your sin. Lying, deceit. Here you also see that Uriah was not the only one who died. Other men died just to cover David's sin. Now, the innocent will get hurt even from you trying to hide your sin from God. It's not just about you. Also, if you realize that those men died, right, that means that children lost their fathers, wives lost their husbands, all to hide David's sin. And I think sometimes our efforts to hide our sin due to a lack of boundaries tends to affect the ones closest to you. I'm very sure that David knew all those men by name, just like he knew who Uriah was. And how do I know that? Because of this. Then David said to then David sent a full sorry, Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king his account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob Beshep? I hope that's what his name is. Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then you say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent to him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, the servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Joab is so concerned here about David's response because Abimelech also died. An innocent man. I don't even, did I even do the right thing? He's like, is this the right thing that should have been done? Even the messenger comes and he's blabbing along, trying to make sure that he gets everything out so maybe he doesn't get in trouble, and trying to emphasize that Uriah died. Yo, David went through extremes. He did not care about casualties to hide his sin. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard about her husband that he was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I think that David showed absolutely no remorse. He heard that innocent people died and Uriah died, but he's just like, ah, war is war. These things happen, right? And sometimes when you have sinned, sometimes you have to cover and do anything possible to hide it. Sometimes not even just sin, shame, guilt. It does that to you, right? You will even put your best friend under the bus. It hasn't happened to me, don't worry. But I'm just saying, right, just to hide your sin. Innocent people will be hurt. And then you're just like, ah, but, you know, it just just happened. And when I was reading this, the whole thing, I'm like, where's God in all of this? 
Only at the end is God displeased. What about at the beginning? And here's the thing. God gives you free will. But also, God gave David so many opportunities to come clean. First, before that even, he gave David an opportunity to not sin. But he did not take it. Then he met with Uriah. Instead of speaking to him like, fam, this is what happened, hey? He didn't do that. He didn't come clean. Instead, he made sure he died. And hoping that that sin will die with him. He did not know what God had to say about this. So it leads me to the boundaries that I feel that are so important for us. But these boundaries are not meant to be implemented once you have sinned, but implemented to keep you from sinning, right? And those are the boundary of temptation, the boundary of accountability, the boundary of conviction, and the boundary of repentance. Woo! My throat is getting a little bit dry. I'm just going to have a little bit to drink here. Cool. So one thing is that Jesus himself was tempted, but Jesus was prepared for temptation, right? Are we prepared for temptation? Because it's going to come. But the thing is this. I've heard many times people be like, oh, God is tempting me. God is going to tempt you with sin? Because the only time in the Bible I've seen anyone be tempted is when Satan went and tempted who? Jesus. I don't see Jesus tempting anyone or God tempting anyone. Oh, do you want this? Oh, no. Do you want it? No. He's not like that. And how do I know this? Because it says in James 1 verse 13 to 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And as you actually read on in the chapter, you find out that um, David and Bathsheba's child actually dies. Right? Because what happened? The sin bred death. I think that the remedy to temptation is to flee from it. And it says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God provided David multiple times a way to escape. What about you? When you have sat there and thought of, oh, let me, let me watch some porn. You know, I mean, it's free now on the internet. You can find it on anything. You can even find it on Netflix lately. Um, but, you know, I once was at like a birthday. Um, it actually wasn't a birthday. It was a... Gender reveal, that's what it was. And I met this man, and yo, damn shit, guys, this guy was beautiful. He was so beautiful. And when we started talking, I was like, oh, there's chemistry here, right? And then I met his wife. And I was like, and I was like, okay. 
is so beautiful, you know, he's, he's my type, and like, and we have chemistry, but not just chemistry, I feel like we, there's probably, possibly like sexual chemistry here too. And then I was like, hi, Masi, hi. My, my parents never raised me to be that person, right? And because I grew up in a family that was broken, to me, that's a hell no. But God also gave me an out, because I just started becoming best friends with his wife. <laughs> I went and I just started speaking to the other wives and the other ladies, and we had a great time. You see, God gave me an opportunity to flee from temptation, and I took it. I ran to it. Why? Because my boundary was firm. I knew who I was and who God called me to be. That's what God wants from you. Temptation will always come. You'll always see someone who's beautiful. You'll always have chemistry with someone, even when you are married. It shows in the story. It shows that. David was tempted. Bathsheba was tempted. They were married. It's not just for single people. It's everyone, right? No, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I have great accountability. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're going to read this part. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew with him and with his children. He used it. He used to eat it used to eat his muscle and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler, now then came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man has done, deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Ah, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your hands, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And this, if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Because why? He was a man after God's own heart. Why have you displeased the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of Ammonites. I love how Nathan uses an analogy that David will easily understand. And that's what God does to us. He will speak to us in a way that we understand. He's not going to come with these big words. He's going to meet you exactly in that point of rebuking in that point, but also God rebukes you because he loves you, right? That's why David is rebuked here, because he is loved by God. But also he's been this, like, this ambassador for Christ. Everyone knows that he's this chosen one and he's amazing, and then he falls, right? And God is upset with him. But the thing is, I asked myself, what were the reasons 
that David even had boundaries, right? I feel like David's boundaries were really blurred. So let's pretend like this is a boundary. I mean, it is stopping me from going forward, right? But sometimes it's so blurry that there's space for you to try, you know, and you try a little bit more, you know, and you're like, okay, let me not, not this time, you know, and then you're like, well, again, trying a little bit more, and eventually, they'll get to a point where you get, okay, it's not coming off, (laughs) now on, when when it's actually going to be removed, right, and you're not going to be, you're not going to have that protection, from the boundary. A boundary is not there to stop you from enjoying your life. It's to protect you from the consequences that come from sin, right? Let me tell you, there's freedom on this side. There's condemnation on that side, right? God wants us to be protected in his boundary, not confined by those boundaries, and I'm, excited. I'm glad because I have great accountability. I have wonderful friends that keep me accountable. But it's not a one-way street. I need to be honest with them. And they need to be honest with me. I love how Nathan comes. Nathan doesn't even ask questions. He's here. He's quick, quick. He's just like, hey, you sinned. God is not happy. Can we have that boldness to go to our family and our friends and keep them accountable and be like, hey, God is not pleased. It does not mean you love them. It means you do love them. If you don't love them, then you're not going to say anything. If you really love someone, then you have to tell them, right? But please, if you're a man, please be accountable to men. If you're a woman, please be accountable to women because otherwise you you actually have a blurred line that forms there, right? And then that's another place you can fall into temptation, right? So women need to find other women who are going to keep them accountable. So in the moment right now, think of someone that you can ask to keep you accountable, but you need to be honest about it. You need to be steadfast about it. And the same thing, who are you going to be accountable to? Right? Let's carry on. The other one is the boundary of conviction. And I, re- I think that this is probably one of the most fundamental of these boundaries. Because if you, don't know what, no, if you do not know why you have a boundary, that's an issue. Because you're going to fall, fam. You're going to fall and you're going to fall hard. And you're like, but God, I loved you. I worshipped you. But you had no conviction of why. Right? I remember when I was like little, I think I was like eight, and I went to holiday school, and I came back home, and I said to my mom, Mom, I'm going to be a virgin until I get married. And my mom was like, you know what a virgin is? And I was like, yes. I don't think I knew. I think I just was so excited, and I had a purity ring, and I said, I'm going to be a virgin, I'm doing this for my husband, I'm doing this for my future children, and yeah, it's going to be so great, God is going to be so pleased, I was saved since I was four, guys, just to give you context, right, and I lived on a mission when I was young, so I've, I've only known God, but that was actually a mindset of an eight-year-old that I brought into a 28-year-old, because my, my mindset didn't change. I was doing it for someone else. I wasn't doing it for my relationship with God, right? And when life started getting tricky, you know, I'm going, I'm getting old now. I'm just like, oh, Lord, you know, I'm okay with not getting married. But at the same time, I want to feel wanted. I want to feel needed. You know, that boundary starts to shake. And then I realized my boundary was actually misguided. 
It was for someone else. Don't have your conviction because someone else told you. It's got to be an inworking of God in your heart. You need to let God convict you and take you out and stand you on that mantle, right? You've got to let God make sure that this boundary doesn't come off, right? It's not about you. It's not about in your strength. And I was trying to do it in my strength. It's not about me. It's not about being perfect. It's about being close to godliness as possible, right? And it says here, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. There's consequences to sin right? But I really want to influ- um, like really impart this and make this really strong. A baby is not God punishing you. So if you've had sex out of marriage and you fall pregnant, God is not punishing you. Why? Your body is designed to have a baby when it has sex, right? But the consequences, the fact that you're going to have a child with someone that you don't want to be with, right? Or you're going to have a child in its entirety and have to be a single mom if you have to be that, right? But it's not punishment. Your body is doing what it's designed to do. So stop saying that God is punishing you. You're the one who sinned. It's a consequence. Live with it. Deal with it. It's going to be with you for what? Forever. That's what happens when you you sin, right? I'm going to be very vulnerable right now. So my... um, I have, my mom and dad are married, but before they got married, um, my mom was pregnant with my sister, and both my parents were university lecturers, right? They both taught music at a university. And um, my parents were engaged, they weren't married at this time, and my dad um, got another woman pregnant the same time that my mom was pregnant. And this woman, my dad, this is her story, that my dad told her that he was going to marry her, right? Not knowing that my dad was already engaged to my mother. So she had a baby, and it was a boy, and it was my brother, Mfundo. And this woman decided that because my dad said she's going to ma- he's going to marry her, she never got married. To this day, she's still not married, right? More so, she went and told my brother that you have no other siblings. It's just you. Your dad doesn't have any, any other children. It's just you. Your dad doesn't want you. Not knowing that my mom told me and my sister about it when we were teenagers and we were searching for him all this time. And when we finally found him and we told him, hey, we're your siblings, he had the shock of his life. And not only that, it actually caused a rift in his relationship with his mom. And he is... I promise you, like, he's such a blessing. I'm so happy that I have him in my life. And he said the one thing he always asked God for was siblings, not knowing that he has. And he had siblings who were looking, looking for him since we were teenagers. To make things worse, I have a photo of when I was a kid. I'm on one side of the photo. He's on the other side of the photo. And we never knew we were siblings. We had the exact same friendship group. We, we chilled together, and we had no idea we were siblings. Do you see how much of life we missed out of each other because of our parents' sin, because of the 
consequence. Yeah, English. <laughs> but you know what? Us as children, we have decided that that's not ours to bear. We need to love each other, right? So also God gives you a choice to break that, right? To break that generational curse, to break that and step into new life. And that's what we have decided as siblings because we're innocent. Children are innocent. Like I said, children are not punishment. He is a joy to have as a brother. What are convictions? Um, Joyce McDowell said, having convictions can be defined as being so thoroughly convinced that Christ and his word are both objectively true and relationally meaningful, that you act on your beliefs regardless of the consequences. Sometimes that means you not having, going out with those friends, changing your friendship group, changing how you do life, changing the music you listen to. Sometimes the sacrifice is a sacrifice that you feel like is not even a big thing, right? Maybe I sit at home and I drink red wine. I know for, for, like, I don't drink red wine because I know that it makes me think of things, right? I like wine, but I just don't drink that one because I have realized that these things that I can sacrifice, also alcohol is not a big thing, so it's an easy sacrifice. But some people have to sacrifice big things. Sometimes you, that means you're not hugging the opposite sex if that needs, that needs to be then you do that, right? But why, what are your convictions? Why are you celibate? Why are you not celibate? You know, what lies have you believed and partnered with that have affected your convictions? You see, our convictions should lead us to a place of repentance. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. Here we find that the child has died after seven days, right? David had been fasting, speaking to the Lord, but the child still dies. And what does David do? He cleans himself, he puts lotion, and he goes and worships God in the midst of his consequences. He is literally dealing with the, the death of his child, but he's still worshiping God. What does God have to do for you to worship him? I feel like if you love the Lord and you say that you're following God, you should have the courage to pursue and worship him in the midst of the consequences, in the midst of the pain. You need to press in. That's not the time for you to run away because God welcomes you with open arms. And it says in Acts 3 verse 19, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And I believe in this time of worship, David was repenting and everything, and God was refreshing him, was renewing him, right? Because David's heart posture changed. Let us live from a place of repentance every single day, living from that place of, God, I repent of my thoughts and my, whatever my dreams, the things that I've watched, the conversations I've had, whatever it may be, we need to live from that place of repentance. Repentance brings refreshing because it takes away shame. And the devil will use all the shame he can 
to keep you from repenting, to keep you from turning away from the sin. But if you quickly turn, then God is faithful to refresh you. This is what repentance um, requires. It requires true brokenness. Repentance is not asking the Lord for forgiveness with the intent to sin again. Yes, God is a God of grace and a God of love. It doesn't mean that he's there for your taking, for what you want him to be. God is God at the end of the day, right? So we have to turn knowing that I'm, my intent is that I'm never going to do this again. Because if you repent and then you're like, oh, I have grace. Oh, I have mercy. God's going to forgive me. You know, he loves me. God is God of love. Yeah, but God is also God of justice. God is a just God, you know. And if it means that he needs to rebuke you to get you back to a place of repentance, that's what God is going to do, right? But we need to allow him to come in and to rebuke us when we need to rebuke us for us to turn to his face. Repentance is an honest, regretful acknowledgement of sin with the commitment to change. Repentance leads us to cultivate godliness while eradicating habits that lead to sin. You see, when you live from a place of repentance, sin is not easy to find you. Temptation is not easy to find you because you are in the right place. Don't be like David and be in the wrong place. (laughs) Come to the place where God is. And let me tell you, it's not easy. It's not meant to be right? But we have to push in because it is worth it at the end. I'm telling you, having sweet relationship and intimacy with God is the best thing ever. It is honestly, it takes away the guilt. It takes away the shame. So um, I felt like really that God wants to take away condemnation in many people's hearts. People who feel condemned like This thing happened to me and it broke me. Now I'm in a place where I feel like my body is just an object or um, you feel like you've fallen so much that there is no healing for you, that there's no no coming back. God God really wants to tell you that he loves you. There is room for you at his altar. There's room for you in heaven. So as the ministry team comes to the front, I really urge you, if you feel like there's places in your life that you want to repent of, of things that you feel like, oh, I fell short here and I really need God to speak new life into me, this is that time. This is that time of refreshing because God wants us to have a boundary of accountability, of repentance, of conviction. He wants us to live a life that is protected and fulfilling. So I thank you, Lord, that you're a good, good Father, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we can be in your presence, Lord, Father God, and not be condemned by you, Lord, Father God. Thank you that you open us, you open up your arms and welcome us, Lord, Father God, who are are sinners, who have been sanctified by you, Lord Jesus. I pray that we're not afraid to run to you, Lord, that this is that time for us to be free to be set free. And and I pray, Lord, for those hearts who are afraid to come up, knowing that no one will actually judge them because you are here to set them free. This is a time of freedom. We thank you, Lord.